A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week Raphael Baer, George Eaton and I talk about trains and infrastructure. I discuss the controversy around girls with Caroline Crampton and Ian Steadman and I talk about the probe that has only just woken up in deep space. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers. And this week we're going to be talking about trains, which is very exciting. Raph, you went down into the Crossrail Tunnel. I did, and it was brilliant. Uh, <laughs> one of the best things about being a journalist, there are many good things about being a journalist, but one of them is nosing around other people's business when it's actually quite interesting and you get out of the office. So that I went through essentially a sort of Harry Potter-style portal, the sort of platform nine and a half, uh, near Whitechapel, which then takes you down a huge sort of 30 metre chasm underground where suddenly you are confronted with this vast, uh, I've described it in the magazines of a cathedral of clay and steel and concrete. Um, and it's pretty bloody impressive, frankly. Um, there is a point to this. It wasn't just a jolly for me. I, I was sort of interested in, I mean, everyone's behind Crossrail. It is this, I don't think people in London necessarily appreciate uh, that this is the biggest engineering project in Europe, but that this is a serious piece of infrastructure that's being put in. Uh, it will obviously be good for the capital. It's good for lots of other people. It employs people all around the country. It draws in... Um, it, it's well, one com- group, it certainly draws in are politicians. You mentioned in the column that yes. George Osborne's been there and that Boris Johnson's Boris has been there. Clegg's lining up to go. They can't wait to get done. It's because, I mean, th- there is this sort of a sort of Ozymandias impulse in politicians. They want people to sort of look on their mighty works and despair. Um, and you know, they sit in their offices in, in Whitehall and they're constantly being thwarted by civil servants and uh, their backbench MPs and their coalition partners. So they love going and seeing something actually happening. Love, I mean, apparently Cameron actually wanted to climb into the diggers and, and have you a go. You can't blame him, though. Um, exactly, you can't. I would and, definitely press the button. Uh, pretty much. And um, But the serious point here, there are two, really. Um, one is that everyone agrees that we need this kind of infrastructure investment. We need more 
railways, roads, everything, if Britain is actually going to be economically functional in the 21st century. But the other one that, interestingly, is that Crossrail, is, this is something that is being done by the state, by government and politics. It's being funded by a, a sort of a hypothecated levy, part funded by a levy on London businesses, which I'm told they were quite eager to pay. It's a sort of rare example of taxpayer saying, please, can we pay more tax? Because it means you'll give us this brilliant new railway. Um, and... That in itself is sort of interesting. There's, there's, we know all this stuff has got to be done, but the political debate in terms of actually how we pay for it is so stuck because there's this, as we know, the sort of dividing line in the election will be uh, Labour wastes all your money, the Tories will cut everything. That doesn't get you very far when everyone knows there are really urgent things government has to do and has to find ways of paying for them and can't just sort of confiscate all the money off all the rich people, um, nor can it, it seems, politically uh, just go out borrowing on the market, although some people would say that's what they have to well, which is what's happened in for example, nuclear power generation, where basically we want Chinese people to come. And, and you mentioned in the column about this kind of need for Chinese investment. Yes, in all uh, essentially, yeah, we projects. can compete in the global race against China as long as China buys us the running shoes and builds us the running track, and then off we go. It's not. It's it's a, first of all, it's not necessarily in terms of the the strategy and money the the obvious way to do it, but also it's a slightly defeatist, dismal view of what. Britain is actually capable of doing itself. And George, this is, uh, on the railways, is a wider point, isn't it? Because the East Coast Main Line had to be taken back into public hands after being run pretty shambolically. They're now trying to privatise it again. But you spoke to Lord Adonis about this. And what, what did he say? Yeah, so I spoke to Adonis, who was the Transport Secretary who renationalised it in 2009. He was nicknamed the Thin Controller by the <laughs> industry. <laughs> And right. at this stage, if we're on TV, we could show a picture of Andrew Dones to show but that he is really quite imagine thin. A thin. Imagine person, a thin person, if you will, for the magic of radio. Yeah. And um, at the time, he suggested that it would be returned to the private sector with, within a year or so. Actually, now he's saying, I think it should remain a public company because it's performed far better than any of the private companies running the other franchises because it doesn't have to pay dividends to shareholders. It's been able to actually return around 600 million in profits to the Treasury. Um, it's reduced journey times. It's got the highest customer approval of any um, of any company. And he says that this proves that uh, the state, that the public sector can run some things better than the private sector. But for almost entirely ideological reasons, the Tories are, are privatising it. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because I always one of the stats that you always quoted me that always surprises me is that there is overwhelming public support for renationalising the railways. Is that as I'm sure our editor would say, because people simply don't have forgotten how bad British Rail was. That's certainly what the what the Transport Secretary said when I asked him that question in an interview. He said, you know, people have just forgotten how rubbish British Rail was and how... And it was. I mean, I'm, I'm just about old enough to remember, and it was a national joke. I mean, it was like national, you know, British Airways, the same. I mean, these were sort of dismal, quasi-Soviet-style, miserable ways to travel. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm now trying to think whether or not Japan's train systems, which I can go on about until the end of time, how amazing they were, whether or not they're in state or private hands. Perhaps someone will tweet in to tell us uh, and I can geek out about that further. Um, but you, I mean, that division between public and private mm. is really interesting because it's, it, it is an ideological one for the Tories, isn't it? Even if it's like Nigel Farage saying that he wants less immigration, even if it turns out immigration is good for the economy. The, the same way that even if the if the public sector runs the East Coast Main Line better, it's not going to stay in the public sector, is it, under the Tories? No, it's not. Um, but there is a live debate in the Labour Party about this. So 
they wouldn't do if they came to power in 2015 a sort of big bang renationalization where you have to pay compensation to the private companies. But when these franchises uh, come up for renewal, they could potentially um, use the public company of currently running East Coast to bid for them as well. And so you gradually take it back into public hands. And what Adonis said to me is I don't use the language of renationalization. I use the language of fair competition. So I think this public company should be free to bid for the contracts alongside Virgin, um, National Express, and so on. And he says the, you know, the great irony is that the Tories are meant to be a pro-competition party and they're actually trying to close competition down in this instance. And the, I mean, the other irony, you mentioned the, the Chinese state earlier in, in relation to nuclear power, is that one of the three approved bidders for the new East Coast contract is a French train company that's nearly 60% owned by the state. So it's as if state companies are fine, so long as they're That's foreign ones. Which so is the same with the EDF for Electricity de France, isn't it? Yes. In the, in, the, in, the, in the energy market. I think the Tories do have a real blind spot here. I mean, if they, they wanted to look at the evidence, they would see that the, the sort of the presumption, the ideological presumption you had maybe 10 years ago, that the state was, was necessarily dysfunctional and inefficient and wasteful and the private sector had all this expertise that, that it could bring to running public services. You know, when the reality is you then have come, you know, essentially G4S, Serco, Capita, these sort of monolithic, vast um, sort of state within the states, private bodies that just mop up all the contracts. And in all sorts of cases, whether it's running prisons, whether it's running security for the Olympics, do an absolutely terrible, terrible job of it. Um, you have to start querying the underlying premise. And obviously Labour are you know, very keen to do that because they lots of the Labour Party were suspicious of that premise in the first place. But I, there aren't enough people, I don't think, on the Conservative Party who are really interrogating the view of, of actually where real efficiency and real capability might come from when it's administered by something's administered by the government or the states. Well, one of the things that's come out about these outsourcing companies, you know, I work with a small charity and it's very difficult for them to compete against massive providers where things are absolutely warehouse and that's what we've seen over and over again with G4S and Circo and things like that that if essentially you don't end up with competition you end up with one or two enormous players in the market who just crowd everyone out. And there's a sort of a, a, a good reason I don't mean good in the sense of there's a plausible reason for that which is that if you're commissioning and you're in Whitehall you the, the culture is absolutely safety first because what you don't want is to give a contract to someone to do something who claims to do it in an interesting, innovative, cost-efficient way. Uh, they've only been up and running for six months. They can't show you the sort of cash flow. Uh, they can't show you the sustained sort of credibility of a company that's been around forever uh, and has done that sort of thing before. And you're terrified that they're just going to go bust, mess it up, and then basic services aren't being delivered. So along come Capita, Serco, G4S. They say, look, we're essentially, we're too big to fail. And that's the appeal, which is awful. I mean, the idea that we are basically creating these new too big to fail behemoths of running public service but without any of the accountability without any of the openness to freedom of information that you would get if there were state bodies it's actually you know when you stop to think about it a, a slightly vile arrangement that we have now created where so much of what we think of as government responsibility is being handed to people that are no more efficient than the old public sector used to be but with none of the accountability and this is a challenge that george that ed Miliband is going to face when he wants to create these new challenger banks he wants to break open banking is that those banks will find it very difficult to compete with huge banks that have enormous numbers of branches. What's his answer to that? Yes, I don't think he's actually got one at the moment. Right, I mean, there okay. are quite a lot of there are quite a lot of people uh, quite favourable to the general arguments he was making, who were saying, "Is this actually 
you know, the best the best idea. I mean, I, there was a, a interesting piece in the in the Guardian yesterday by the Korean economist Ha Jun Chang saying you know, this was an important agenda setting speech by Miliband. But you know, the state already owns um, two banks. Would it not be better that rather than um, sort of creating these new challenger banks that are going to take a long time? To really, um, to really grow and become significant players, why not direct RBS and Lloyds to lend to small businesses, to to channel money to where it's needed, to to improve jobs and, and living standards? The the government has been prepared to intervene on bonuses, both uh, both the last Labour government and 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 the coalition. Um, why aren't they Why aren't they doing more? And it's because the argument is well, you have to treat the um, the banks as you would other private sector institutions that they have to be able to act um, you know, not as as normally as possible um, but he says you know, that would be acceptable and um, were it not that the banking system was was working so terribly before well that brings us very nicely full circle to the idea of using state-owned assets and essentially to encourage competition rather than discourage it so on that beautiful present gift wrapped bow I'll say thank you very much George and Raf thank you thank you. I'm joined by our web editor, Caroline Crampton, to talk about Girls. Now, for people who haven't seen Girls, it's now entering its third series. It's written and directed by Lena Dunham, who has become something of a lightning rod for feminist criticism, as well as acclaimed as one of the most interesting writer-directors out there. I, Caroline, have seen one and a half episodes of Girls, which I watched on a plane, and my main memory of it is everything looked quite brown, but that might have been the fact that it was on a very small screen. It is also a lot of it set in Brooklyn, which is quite brown, the buildings, uh, the trees, etc. But the the main thing you need to know about Girls is it's a comedy about four 20-something women and the adventures they get up to, you know, who they sleep with, who they break up with, what their jobs are doing. Um, in that sense, it's not dissimilar from an HBO show uh, from the early 90s, um, in late 90s, rather, Sex, Sex in the City, City, which has had a lot of comparisons. But I think the comparisons really just end at the fact that it's got four principal female characters and they live in New York. Um, which is, I think is interesting, because you describe it as a comedy. It's it's more a sort of hmm, wry smile kind of comedy it's than a... It's a cringing, uncomfortable kind of laugh, comedy. is it? Although very occasionally you do just laugh out loud, but that's no, that's more at the writing than the situations. It's got funny lines, Lady Dunham is a very funny writer. It's not because uh, they end up in situations that make you laugh. It's things they say. It's wry. And it's one of these shows, AMC's Mad Men is another one, where it's kind of cultural significance is out of proportion with the number of people who actually watch it. Oh, yes. I mean, I saw a very funny uh, tweet from one of the US BuzzFeed writers a couple of weeks ago when it... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com premiered in America saying happy girls think peace season everybody and there's, there's this kind of sense that it's in its third season this is the third year now when uh, it's you know obviously the actors and so on have been on their publicity drive but just the overwhelming number of what does girls mean for women 
mm. uh, pieces written on blogs and magazines and newspapers. It just, it's just ridiculous. It's not like anything else I've ever seen in that sense. Is what girls mean for women that a very rare, exceptionally talented woman has broken out, but overall things remain quite bad for women in television? Yes, and I I went to the Sky Atlantic, which is running the show in the UK, hosted a premiere event a couple of weeks ago, which included a Q&A session with Lena Dunham, a couple of the other cast members and the producer. Uh, and I'd never really seen Lena Dunham speak unedited, I'd only seen her speak on video and stuff before. And I was really struck by how incredibly knowledgeable she is about filmmaking. So there were a few questions about the film uh, that really brought her to fame before she did Girls Tiny Furniture, which she crowdfunded and did herself. Um, and she just kept reeling off sort of the numbers of cameras she'd used and the sort of specific types of lenses and how this one was better than that one. She has she's extremely knowledgeable. She's really done her homework. She desperately wants to succeed in that industry. So I think it's really just a lesson that if you work extremely hard and, as she said herself, are quite lucky, you will do well. I think that's very interesting because that doesn't come across in a lot of the media Not that's written all. around Not her. Not at all. Much of which, I have to say, to me, it has a slight tone of oh, come on, she's just writing about what everyone's lives are like. I definitely could have done that. There's not that much artistry to it. Whereas the impression I got from seeing her speak is that she's extremely knowledgeable, but she's also, unlike, I think she's portrayed being this kind of lone pioneer, she's extremely collegiate in the way she works. Uh, it was a Q&A style thing with five people being asked questions by an audience, directed, slightly bizarrely, by Richard E. Grant, who's a guest star in the new series, um, who is clearly a very big fan of hers, and so had volunteered to do it. And she would start answering a question, and she'd get about two sentences in, and then she'd turn to one of her co-stars and say, is that how you thought it was? And bring them in immediately. She would almost never give a complete answer without consulting somebody else. And I thought, if that's the way she works too, which it seems probable, then I'm not... I'm not convinced by the, the way she's been cast. Which I think a lot of which focuses on her as a sort of exceptional woman and the way that it, she should therefore be perfect in every way. Now, to dip our toe into an intensely controversial matter, there was a lot of criticism around the time that the, at the end of the first season about how white the show was. So it's set in Brooklyn, mm. which is about, I think, about 50-50 uh, ethnic minority and white. And um, the show, that all the four principal characters in it are all white. How's that changed as the seasons have gone on? It has changed in that there have been uh, major characters who are non-white. Um, uh, Lena Dunham's character Hannah goes out with um, an African-American guy for quite a substantial portion of the second series. And actually when they break up, they they have on screen the kind of conversation that had been happening off screen. So she'd obviously been listening and thinking about the criticism of the show. And she said that in that q and I went to, that she does... For, for her sins, she reads every tweet. She's Some of the, her cast members kind of rolled their eyes at this as if it's a kind of personality flaw she has, but she is obsessed about knowing what everyone thinks and taking on board the criticism. And there's also... I find that really interesting because the same thing happened. There was a similar row about Lily Allen and about the way that she'd done a video that was sort of critiquing, twerking, but also had you know, black mm. women use kind of as body props in the background. And she tweeted articles that were critical of her and she definitely engaged with it. And I do wonder if there is a a thing about the the level of abuse that women like that get 
hasn't actually stopped them from engaging with the proper serious well thought through mm. criticisms and I do therefore admire them more for it. Yeah, so Lena Dunham started off I think from the position where at the end of the first series where people were saying well how come there aren't any non-white characters in this and she said well you know I'm portraying a very privileged section of society these are all girls who are getting support from their parents to be able to live in New York and it just so happens that the people I know who've done that, who I'm drawing on for this, are white. But I think now she's moved to, to a point where, OK, well, maybe that's not the whole story. Maybe there is more I can do there. So, for instance, in the, the third series, um, one of the characters goes to rehab um, in a kind of daddy's girl gone wrong, too much money kind of way. And she meets an African-American woman there who is in a similar kind of situation. Um, and the fact that they're of different racial backgrounds is irrelevant because they're both there for the same reason. Mm. So I think she's kind of moved to a different point where it's not a kind of us and them type situation anymore. It's just a kind of uh, people and I should think less about. I think that's interesting because, I, again, it's, the, it's one of the things that happens to high profile women is that you're because there are so few of them around. Everything, everyone's hopes and dreams are invested in that one mm. person. And actually, you know, you see more st- we um Mad Woman, who blogs for us, wrote about um, Orange is the New Black and um, Scandal, which has a black female mm. lead. And you have to hope that as there are more shows which show more racial diversity, every one person becomes that the level of scrutiny on that one person kind of is diluted out. Because I could I can see entirely why people made those criticisms of the first series of girls. Mm. I can also see Lennon Dunham's defence. But the problem is that everybody felt that if it's not happening in girls, it's not happening anywhere because there's yeah. she's the one who, she's the kind of lone mongoose who's broken out of the pack and is running away. Yeah. And in that's some a ways, terrible metaphor. It, Sorry, it I don't of, know what mongoose do. It kind of drowned out the fact that in some circles, at least, that it is a good television program made by a woman about women's lives. Mm. It's perhaps a little bit problematic or very problematic in some areas depending on your point of view but that doesn't make it not witty and enjoyable um, and funny or good writing so I think there is a problem that if it's not completely perfect it can just get shouted down completely but that is girls think piece season again is that it's it's the one show that becomes the peg on which you hang everything else and therefore an unrealistic weight of expectation is put upon it Mm. whereas if we were having you know other shows that had you know that addressed other issues and there was a fair representation in aggregate there'd be less pressure on Mm. on one show so i'm very much um uh in the piece i've written for the magazine this weekend in general uh, advocating for a kind of revisionist approach to girls which is let's watch it like it's a television program and critique it like a, like it's a television program. Yes, the Onion had a great headline, which was "Feminist takes half hour off to enjoy TV show." Yes, that's very much where I am at the moment. Is um, it's I think good television. You might disagree. Let's talk about that. Okay, on that basis, <laughs> thank you very much, Caroline. I'm joined by a tech writer, Ian Stedman, to talk about space. So uh, we've already done trains on the programme, now we're doing space. It's mm. like all my nerd loves in, <laughs> uh, in one go. The reason that we're talking about it is because NASA launched a probe. No, ESA. ESA, the European Space Agency, yes. Um, which is not yes, an organisation that you encounter being called that often. But So the European Space Agency launched Rosetta. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, it's been sleeping. It has been. And it's now awake. It is, and everyone's very excited about it. So, uh, first of all, what's the point of it, and where's it going? Uh, Rosetta is on its way to a comet. It's going to be the first human spacecraft to land on a comet, 
which is pretty amazing. The closest we've got before to this is the uh, um, well, the Giotto mission, which flew through Halley's Comet's tail in the 80s, uh, was the first time to get really close to a comet and take photos and stuff. And we kind of understood that a comet is a big, dirty snowball, just kind of an aggregation of water, frozen methane, frozen carbon dioxide, and bits of dust. And there was also a Japanese mission, the Hayabusa mission, in 2005, which landed on an asteroid called Itokawa. And in 2010, that, uh, a sample from that asteroid was returned to Earth, which was the first time that had ever happened. Um, and like that mission, Rosetta is going to be very important for understanding the early history of the solar system, like what happened when everything sort of came together and formed planets and the sun and all that kind of stuff. Because those comets and asteroids have been floating around since then, pretty much unchanged. And it'd be really useful to know their composition in more detail. And I also read, is there a not a plan by the Japanese to send up a really big magnet into space to catch all of the stuff that's floating around Earth in the hope that gravity won't happen again? What? No, I mean, <laughs> not gravity the force, gravity the film. Oh, I mean, gravity I the film. The oh, uh, yeah, there gravity. are lots of different cool plans like that. There's a, there's a British uh, company which is working on a satellite that will harpoon bits of... Uh, sort of floating debris which is quite cool there's um like people want to do nets and stuff like that yeah there's all kinds of crazy plans to basically prevent um a catastrophic disintegration scenario like that i when i interviewed chris hadfield who went up in the iss he talked about the fact they obviously they steer the international space station through mm. lots of this junk but at the same time he says you can see on sometimes on some of the panels what look like kind of bullet holes essentially little bits of debris i mean that happens not infrequently as these things go and it is a it is a huge worry as we send more and more stuff out that it kind of it just sort of lingers around. So from these comets, apart what, when you know the composition of a comet, how is that helpful? Because those, uh, well, the, the composition of the comet will reflect the materials that were used to make up the, the, the solar system, effectively. Um, it also will help us understand how comets act and why they do the things that they do. Um, the more information, like we can look at a comet from a distance and say, oh, it's about this big and its gravity is probably like this and stuff like that. Um, and the light it gives off means that it probably has these chemicals and these molecules making up its structure. But we don't know for sure until we actually go there, which is why this is so cool. But it's been asleep for almost three years, two and a half years, 31 months. Um, and it's always very scary when you send a multi-billion dollar or euro spaceship to sleep just flying through space. Because um, they launched this in 2004. It's been in space for 10 years, but to get out to this uh, comet, which is in sort of in the asteroid belt right now, it's like more towards Jupiter than Mars, though. Hang on, this is, is this the Kuiper belt? Am I going No, there? the Kuiper belt is way out. The Kuiper belt is way outside. the like That's uh, sort of where comets, like the really old comets come from and uh, really old asteroids and stuff. That's like, like where the Oort cloud is and where Pluto is and all that kind of okay, stuff. Okay, that's really right. This is, this is sort of our neighbourhood. But comets have weird elliptical, very tight orbits, and the Earth obviously has quite a round one. So getting a space probe to, like, to get near a comet and then to orbit it and then to land on it means you have to pull off some quite tricky trajectory changes. So to do that, like they launched it 10 years ago, but it went out and then back to Earth and flew past the Earth. It's done three flybys of the Earth and one flyby of Mars just to build up enough speed and change you its direction. You essentially use the gravity of the Earth as a yeah. kind of slingshot, don't you? So it's kind of pulled towards the Earth and then you kind of use a bit of power to twang it off in a different direction. Yeah. Um, and then th two and a half, 31 months ago, uh, it finally built up enough speed to go out beyond the orbit of Jupiter to about 800 million kilometres away from the Sun. 
And when you get out that far, solar panels don't work anymore. And because they didn't want to drain the batteries, they just turned it off, knowing that it's on the right path. Like when you throw a ball in the air, it's just going to come down. So they just turned it off and they were waiting 31 months. And now it came back within the orbit of Jupiter. They could turn it back on again and it woke up, which is great. My big question is if they can make something, they can switch it off and then switch back on again, 800 million miles away from work. Why was it so hard to set up my PlayStation when I got one this weekend? <laughs> and uh, because, uh, well, that's, that, I'm going to leave that deep <laughs> existential question for you to ponder, and I'm going to go mystery home for be, the ages, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, go home and be annoyed about it. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com/podcast or on iTunes. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.